9th, 2002, astronaut Buzz Aldrin, the second human uh, to set foot on the moon, was walking outside of a Beverly Hills hotel when a conspiracy theorist named Bart Sibrel began to harass Aldrin. One of the things that he spoke to Aldrin is, you're the one who said you walked on the moon when you didn't. Sibrel told Aldrin as he walked by a filming crew that he had staged outside the Lux Hotel. Aldrin, notably irritated, asked him, will you just leave me alone? Get away from me. Sibrel moved in closer and continued, you're a coward, you're a liar. And before Sibrel could get the word thief out of his mouth, Buzz Aldrin at the age of 72 uh, laid a punch, or maybe landed a punch, on the jaw of Sibrel. Now, you might be here today, and uh, you might be online, and you doubt the validity of the moon landing, and that's okay. I do believe that we landed on the moon, and let me be very clear, this is not an invitation for you to send videos or articles to me about shadows and other things like that. But doubters have always existed, and for good reason. And the reason is because men are liars. A conspiracy theorists exist because conspiracies exist. And so as we get started today, let me set the stage for our text by introducing you to first century false teachers or first century conspiracy theorists. Two generations, two generations removed from the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, roughly 80 AD, there were false teachers claiming that Jesus was not divine. On the other side, there were false teachers who were claiming that Jesus was not human. Uh, there were theories on all sides regarding who Jesus really was. These were, the latter were the Gnostics who believed that the body, the physical, is evil. And, and the Gnostics' whole objective, they thought, was we need to rid ourselves of this physical uh, and reach some higher spiritual plane. And because of that, there were certain groups of Gnostics who believed that Jesus in his entire existence was simply a phantom, that there was nothing physical about him. There were other groups within this larger group of Gnostics who believed uh, that Jesus, uh, the spirit of him came and embodied this man for three years while he ministered and then would eventually leave. Now, as you can imagine, this would have significant ramifications if it were true on the doctrine of the resurrection, that we will be physically raised, that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. This is why Paul would write extensively to combat these issues in Galatians. It's why 1 Corinthians 15 exists, where Paul speaks so boldly and, and uh, lengthy about the resurrection and our resurrection from the dead. He's trying to combat against these individuals, these false teachers. Well, this letter, 1 John and John's gospel, are his response to the false teachers, to the conspiracy theorists as well. As the last living apostle, John is compelled by the Holy Spirit to write regarding the life of Jesus. His gospel is a, a, a letter, or his gospel and this letter are, you could put it this way, a metaphorical punch to the face of those false teachers and conspiracy theorists who were leading the ones who John loved astray. So in both his gospel and this letter, John defends, declares, and defines 
the person of Jesus Christ. Unique to John is the way in which he begins this letter. The word what? Or some of your translations have the word that. That's not a very great way to begin the letter. What or that? And so we're going to work our way back through this in a moment, but what does the what or that that John begins with refer to? If we follow his opening statements, we see that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning what? The word of life. The word of life. The that or the what that he begins with refers to the word of life, which he says is from the beginning, which I believe to be a clear reference to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word of life. In both his gospel, which Dustin led us in at the opening of our gathering and here in today's text, which Jason just read for us, John refers to Jesus as the word. The word. Now that's the Greek word logos, and so there's some significance here that I want to unpack before we move into the text as well. The concept of, of the word or the logos is imbued with meaning for both the Jews and the Greeks. Remember, this is this time frame and period. To the Greek philosophers, the idea of the logos is that there's this impersonal, there's this abstract principle of reason and order to the universe. This creative force that exists, the source of all wisdom. This is what the Greek philosophers would study. And you can still go back and you can read some of their writings regarding this logos. Even Greek lay, lay individuals who were not philosophers would understand that the logos is one of the most important principles in the universe. We might think of it along the lines of George Lucas's force that exists in the Star Wars empire. There's something that's tying all of this together and working behind the scenes. This is their thought. The word of the Lord was also a significant Old Testament theme as well for the Jewish people. The word of the Lord was an expression of divine power and wisdom because by the word of the Lord, the universes were created. By the word of the Lord, we see throughout Scripture people being called and people being commissioned and people going and kings rising and falling by the word of the Lord. And so the significance is that John presents Jesus to his Jewish readers as the incarnation, the enfleshment of this divine power and revelation that has always existed. The Oxford Bible Dictionary reads this way. It says, this is an important development for Christology, the study of Christ. It is an assertion that the Word who was God's agent in creation was to be identified with the human figure, Jesus of Nazareth. So this is a sermon about Jesus, the Word of life. In a letter written by Benjamin Franklin to Ezra Stiles in 1790, here's what Benjamin Franklin wrote. As to Jesus of Nazareth, 
I think the system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes, and I have with most of the present dissenters in England some doubts as to his divinity. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and I think it needless to busy myself with it now. Benjamin Franklin, who we would consider one of the smartest, most creative individuals, said, I think it needless to busy myself with understanding the divinity of Jesus. His is not the approach we are going to take as we make our way through 1 John. Today, we're going to consider the word of life revealed. We're going to consider the word of life proclaimed and the word of life believed. In verse 2, we read this, that the life was manifest. This life was manifest. John's testimony is that the word of life was from the beginning. From the beginning. John, uh, uh, some suggest that, that what John is referencing here is the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. The incarnation, that virgin birth experience that we just left celebrating in December. But I think this goes deeper and beyond the beginning of Jesus' life. I think this refers to Jesus being eternal. I cannot help but see a direct parallel between what John writes here in the opening of his first letter and what he writes in the opening of the gospel, which Dustin read for us. It'll be on the screen. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I believe that John is in both places signaling and reminding us of the eternal nature of Jesus. The word putting on flesh, what we recognize as the incarnation of Jesus, was not the beginning of Jesus. He has always been. This was the main issue at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., the council that was called together and called together and brought together church leaders from across the known world to discuss and debate these theological issues. Is Jesus really man? Is Jesus really God? I want to read to you a portion of that Nicene Creed that was written. Here's what they concluded. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Begotten, this idea signifying this unique relationship between the Father and the Son. He is begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. As I read that, I was reminded of us in this room just a few weeks ago on Christmas Eve and we had candles in our hands and we sang these lyrics. Word of the Father, begotten, not created. Oh, come, let us adore Him. We recognize the significance of this. He is the Word that has always been, now 
enfleshed. Now in human form. Oh, come let us adore him. Let me give you an anecdotal side note here. Uh, Some of you have heard the the fables of St. Nicholas. And we think of St. Nicholas in the sense of Santa Claus, but there are some who believe St. Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea and that he actually punched Arius, uh, the purporter and the heretic of these false doctrines, in the face. Some of you may have heard that before. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but that's where his lore begins, and then he would go on. He was a, a bishop from the area of Turkey that we know today. But if you do want to study a hero of the faith from this era who fought against these heresies, Athanasius would be one that I would commend to you. To learn of Athanasius, learn of his stand against Arius and these false doctrines that were there. Prior to the incarnation, Jesus was spiritual, but when he humbled himself to enter his creation, he took on flesh, he took on the physical. This is important because this sets up John's next declarations. John heard the word of life. That's his testimony. He heard the word of life. John, with his own physical ears, heard the the larynx, the physical larynx of Jesus say those words, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. John heard Jesus with his own ears say, as he was hanging there on the cross, he looks at John and says, behold your mother. He heard him after the resurrection with the others say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. John heard him. John doesn't stop there. He says, I saw the word of life with his own eyes. He saw Jesus. He, he saw him eat. He saw him sleep. He saw him teach and heal. He saw him die. He saw the physically resurrected body of Jesus in front of him. Finally, John looked on and even touched the word of life. John is the one who would rest his head on the bosom of Jesus. John knew what it was to embrace the Son of God in physical form. John shares this to defend his own credibility and authority to speak to these issues. He shares this to combat the false teachers who were claiming that Jesus wasn't God. He shares this to combat the false teachers who were claiming that Jesus wasn't man. But notice that John doesn't claim this alone. Over and over, John uses this plural pronoun, doesn't he? We. We looked. We touched. We saw him. We heard him. John is not alone in his claims. He's part of a larger community and certainly John means to include his fellow apostles and others who were there with Jesus. And that leads to our next point. The word of life proclaimed. John uses two words to talk about his involvement with this revealed or manifested Jesus. First he says, we've testified. And then he says, we proclaim. First is the testimony. In a court case, who do the lawyers and judges call on to testify? Witnesses. Witnesses 
are ones who are called to testify. And as we just read, John is a witness to the person and the work of Jesus, the word of life. John's gospel is a testimony or an eyewitness account of the things that he has seen and heard and experienced regarding the person and the work of Jesus. We use this terminology even still today in the church, testimony. To be a witness to something. Just last Sunday night, Josh and Brandy shared their testimony. What does that mean? It means that they, they shared their eyewitness account of the faithfulness of God that has been and continues to be at work in their life. By the way, it was incredibly encouraging. Grateful to have heard it. Next, John, along with the others, he says, we have proclaimed the word of life. One cannot give witness and cannot testify without proclaiming or speaking. And so the word means to tell, to report, to bring news. And John has spent his life now sharing this news and this report, his witness of Christ. And by taking up his pen, he once again is testifying and proclaiming the person and the message of Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 2. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify and we proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father. Notice verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Here's an important distinction. John is not simply proclaiming a message. John is not simply peddling a new religion that he hopes will take hold. John is proclaiming a person. The person. Jesus the Christ. We forget this oftentimes. This right here, what we do on a weekly basis becomes about performance of our religious responsibilities. It becomes about words on a page of a Bible or words found in an article of faith. And honestly, all of these things are wonderful. Our, our religious performances are wonderful. The words that we, we read and consider are wonderful. They are good, but they are not Jesus himself. They're not the word of life. They are not eternal life that was with the Father, sent to the earth, and is now returned to the Father. We must learn to distinguish between the things that help us know and love Jesus and Jesus himself. And that's not an easy task sometimes. So what does it mean that Jesus is the word of life? I have three thoughts on this. First, the word of life is the only answer to the curse of death. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How do we gain the eternal life? Through the word of life. Jesus is the answer to what happened in the garden and the fall of man and the promise of death and what has happened for 
centuries and millennium past where all who are born die. But the word of life enters into creation so that the curse might be reversed, so that death might be no more. Second, the word of life is the answer to our being dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of our new life in Christ, which is sealed in us by the Holy Spirit, we who were dead in our sins are now dead to our sins. Think about that. Dead in our sins, but now we are dead to our sins and alive with Christ. Another way in which the word of life impacts us is in our suffering because suffering is its own kind of death, but in those deaths and those depths and those painful moments of grief and suffering, we're reminded that the word of life brings purpose and resurrection to all of the difficulties that we face in this world. In John chapter 3, the gospel of John, we read of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And, and it's a fascinating discussion. Jesus tells Nicodemus that a person must be born again. And of course, Nicodemus has no idea what that means. And Jesus goes on to try to explain to him what it means. And he gets to the real answer of being born again in verse 14 of John chapter 3. And here's what it says. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, which is a whole other story, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This promise of eternal life is why John would give his life to testifying and proclaiming Jesus. His work is not a safe work. Every one of his fellow companions have already been martyred for this same work. But John is compelled to continue on, but he further explains this in verses three and four. Notice what it says in our text. We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's talk about the word of life now believed. See, John proclaims Jesus so that others, like us, might believe and embrace the person of Jesus the Christ. John proclaims so that we too might hear from and see Jesus, not, not physically at this point, but through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, John proclaims so that we too might be born again by this word of life. Born again to new life. You see, faith, belief, trust in the word of life, Jesus, 
gives way to fellowship with John. That's what John says. You could have, you could have fellowship with me, with other Christians. But even Beyond that, and more importantly than that, is fellowship that is truly, he says, it is indeed with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. Fellowship. So what do we mean by fellowship? I grew up in a church uh, that had a fellowship hall. Anybody else? Oh, yeah. Fellowship hall, for those of you who don't know, it was usually just a bigger room where you would have meals and there might be other events that would happen. Uh, we, we could potentially call the basement a fellowship hall, but it's not very big for fellowship. I'm not against having a fellowship hall, though if we did have a space big enough, I probably wouldn't call it that. And the reason is it seems to relegate the concept of fellowship to a space, something physical. Fellowship has nothing to do with physical space. The word here, koinonia, not only describes close relations with another person. Karen Jobes describes it this way. It's an association based on common interests and purposes. Another author says, another author says this. It's a, it's a commitment to a common task. I love what the old pastor says, John Stott. He says, it, this is a uniquely Christian word. But what, what is it? It's, it's partnership. Fellowship means partnership. Uh, fellowship means that, that there's a shared life. There's shared experience. And I'm not alone in this, but I am uniquely linked in this. Because we try to conceptualize the idea of marriage is probably the best picture we have to help us understand the weight of this word. In fact, we learn from Ephesians chapter 5 that, that marriage is a picture of this relationship, this fellowship that we have with Christ. He is, he is the, the groom and the church is the bride. In my marriage to faith, we're partners in this life. We share life together from a very practical level to a deeply intimate level. And the stronger our marriage, the more shared we are. The more committed to a common purpose and foundation that we're building on. This is why a follower of Jesus should never marry someone who is not committed to following Jesus. Because that's not a shared purpose. They can't have a shared life in that endeavor. The purposes don't align. But our church is a fellowship. Call ourselves that from time to time. A church is meant to be a fellowship of born again followers of Jesus. We're committed to the common task to know Christ, to make him known. Our partnership and shared life is not founded upon political affiliation, it's not founded upon how we choose to school our children and educate them, it's not founded upon uh, whether we sing these songs or these songs. These foundations are all unstable, they're sand. Our fellowship has to be built on something more significant, and that is Jesus, the word of life. Our fellowship is bound to him and him alone. 
We're also reminded here that the Christian life is not a solo endeavor, is it? Many claim that it is, but John is clear that through Jesus, we can have fellowship with the Father and Son, but also with the saints. It means that as we're sharing the good news of Jesus, we're not just inviting them to Jesus, we're inviting them to the church, to fellowship with saints. And this is the fellowship with the Father and Son and fellow saints that leads to what John describes as complete or full joy. He's writing these things, and this is his last statement there, so that our joy may be full and complete. Now, there's a textual decision to be made here. Some of your translations say, so that your joy may be complete. Some translations say, so that our joy may be complete. Many Greek manuscripts say your, many Greek manuscripts say our. Either way, we understand there is joy for the reader. But as I look at what John is describing here, I think it probably does refer to a more plural understanding, our. John is including himself in this fellowship. It's our mutual fellowship together that we find in the word of life. In John 15, Jesus is encouraging us to abide in him. And he uses this great illustration. Like a, like a vine abides on a branch. Life-giving, right? The word of life. He is who gives us life. The branch is what gives the vine life, or vice versa. It's a clear picture of what Jesus does for us. And then he says this in that same text. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. As we are abiding in Christ, as we are connected to Christ, in fellowship with Christ, we experience the fullness of joy. A little while later, that same night, Jesus would pray what we understand as his high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples who are in the room, but he's also praying for us, his disciples who would come in time to follow him. Here's what he says, but now, Father, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, what's second in the list? Joy. Yet so many of us lack joy. So many of our friends and family and neighbors lack joy. So what's the problem? What's the issue? Well, for those who do not know the word of life, a lack of joy makes complete sense. They have no avenue for joy. They have no connection to, to understand the joy that is Jesus, the life that comes to us from Jesus. But for those of us who do know the word of life, when our 
fellowship is hindered. It's like a kinked hose. And that, that joy just can't make it through. So when you're trying to water your grass and only a few dribbles are coming out, what do you have to do? You have to go back and you have to find the kink. You have to do whatever you do. You look like a moron sometimes, flipping the hose around and doing those things. You have to find where is the problem. Somewhere sin is hindering your fellowship with God and so your joy just dribbles. It's not full. It's not flowing. Like John, I want you to know the fullness of joy. I want to know the fullness of joy. Like John, I know that that only comes when our fellowship with the Father and Jesus and our fellow believers is unhindered. Like John, I know that this fellowship is only possible through the person of Jesus, the word of life. You're not going to find it in any other place. So let me ask you this today. With all sincerity, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Is your trust in him to be eternal life rather than yourself one of the beautiful things about John's what some authors called mangled prologue because he's a little bit of everywhere here is it reminds us of this our faith is not subjective our faith is objective the evidence surrounding the person of Jesus is ample John is making that abundantly clear here and in his gospel as well as the other gospel writers and Paul's other epistles. The question then is how will we respond to the evidence? Jesus is clear in John 3 that whoever believes will receive eternal life. And so friends, I want to invite you into this beautiful fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the saints believe so that you might have eternal life for the believers has your faith grown stale has your faith grown stale because your faith has been in the words about Jesus rather than the person of Jesus has your faith grown stale? Because your faith has been about performance. It's been about coming to church, serving in the ministry you serve in, singing, giving, reading, rather than a faith that is in the person of Jesus. I could liken it maybe to this. I can look at my wife's shadow that's not the same thing as looking at my wife. His word, our performance, the responsibilities are shadows that are meant to, to draw our attention to the person, to look him in the eye, to hear him as John hears him, 
Let's make sure we're focusing our attention on the actual person of Jesus. And if either of these first two points or questions describes you, my challenge for you this week, read the Gospel of John. Because John's objective is to help us consider the person of Jesus. Remind yourself that this Jesus is is in some other space sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf and waiting, anticipating the day that he will return very physically as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to establish his reign and kingdom. You will reign forever are not vain words we sing. They're a declaration of our faith in the person of Jesus. One more question. How's your joy today? The measure of our joy, according to John, is the measure of our fellowship with the Father, Son, and the saints. Now next week as we move into verse 5 through 10, we're going to specifically see how sin hinders our fellowship. But today, I want you to seriously consider the state of your fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the saints. Where is the kink in the hose? Where is sin hindering? Is it a habitual sin? Is it bitterness? That you have, maybe it's against somebody even in this room. Maybe it's against somebody in your family or at work. It's a kink in the hose. Is it a spirit of pride that's demanding your way? Is it laziness or worldliness that's keeping you from spending time with the Father, the Son, and the saints? Is your focus and purpose misaligned with the purposes of the Father and the Son? Unkink the hose today so that you might experience the fullness of joy. Unkink the host. Repent. And I ask you to bow with me, if you would. I want to give us all a moment here for prayer. Your faith may be stale. Your faith may be non-existent. You may have sin that needs to be confessed. This is the time to, to express those things that are weighing on your heart. If you're here today and you need to talk to somebody, you need to pray with somebody, I want to invite you to my right, to the prayer room. We have people that would love to, to pray with you, uh, to answer questions that you may have. But in this moment, let's take the opportunity to focus our attention on the word that's been manifest and revealed, proclaimed, and believed. And I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father, we are thankful for your only begotten, the word of life, 
Jesus. My prayer today is that we leave here with a fuller understanding of who He is, not who He was, who He still is, and who He will be forevermore. And God, my greatest concern is that everyone leaves this room proclaiming He is my Savior. He is my Deliverer. My eternal life. He is the one who gives me life. Spirit, I pray that you would continue to teach and convict whatever needs to happen. And for those of us who are here and we are believers and we make those proclamations along with John, we have heard him, we have seen him. But our lives lack joy because they lack fellowship or because there's some sin that's embedded itself in, in our life. We need to confess it. We need to restore the fellowship. It's meant to be ours. Oh God, I pray that you would work that miracle as well. Keep us safe today, we pray. Keep us focused today, we pray. Reflective and worshiping. In Jesus' name.